0: Moses, now he has a whole empire. He has lots of citizens. The prophets after him have land, have an army which they're commanding. They're the commander in chief. So what are the limitations of the power, the authority? Chapter four deals with how the head of state, this divinely appointed king, is immune from prosecution. He is above the law. He cannot be prosecuted for anything. And it is a natural conclusion because even today you find that the president of the United States for example, he's Im- immune from prosecution. The queen or the king of the United Kingdom is immune from prosecution. These individuals if they break the law, they can't be prosecuted. Talk about the mosaic covenant the fourth covenant and the fourth covenant is perhaps one of the most interesting covenants yet because it is unlike the previous three covenants it is radically different in the first covenant God is establishing a covenant between him and between Adam and eve the first of human beings the first of creation in the second covenant uh, all of humanity and the canaanites have been wiped out uh, by the flood and there only now remained noah and his family and so those eight people god is establishing his second covenant with them very small groups of people a limited uh, number of individuals. The third covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, God is establishing a covenant with Abraham uh, and his family. And at the time, it was only Abraham and uh, his wives that were there and his son, Ismail, alayhi And so it was a limited group of people. The first covenant, it's with one family, Adam's family. Second covenant, it's with Noah's family. Third covenant, it's with Abraham's family. But when we come to the fourth covenant, it's a completely different situation. Because uh, after Abraham, uh, Abraham had appointed his successor, who was Isaac, Isaac appointed his successor, Jacob. Jacob appointed his successor, Joseph. And then Joseph moves into Egypt. The Israelites, the the 12 tribes, they move into Egypt and they multiply over there. And the Hebrews, the Israelites, who are underneath the Abrahamic covenant, they become 600,000 in number by the time that their promised Savior arrives, who is Moses. Moses appears to them and his story starts off really with the verses in the Quran which state that and he entered the city unnoticed and there was a man from his Shia who was pleading for his help against a man from his enemies and so Moses punches the man from the enemies and causes his death upon the death of the egyptian moses says the most important sentence he says verily he is the work of the devil and he is a misguiding enemy clear misguiding enemy and so with that sentence Moses justifies his action of murdering the enemy of his people by saying it's okay because he is a work of the devil he is a son of the devil he's a descendant of the devil and therefore his blood. Was permissible and it was that reason that Moses was justified in his actions because the enemy was a was not a member of the Covenant he was not a descendant of Abraham and he was a descendant of Canaan okay Fast forward a little bit. Moses goes into an absence. Moses returns back many years later to his people. He starts rallying them up. He leads them across the Red Sea and they go into the wilderness, into Sinai. And Moses receives revelations from God that he has to go meet with him. He meets with him and he receives. Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are the beginning of a new covenant. And many people think that in this new covenant, uh, that the covenant or the laws that Moses received were only ten, but rather they were something uh, more like 613 laws. And in actuality, there were more if we were going to derive off of them different laws. And these laws are all listed in the Torah. And the laws were very specific. The laws dealt with every aspect of communal life. It dealt with marriage, it dealt with divorce, it dealt with uh, how do you treat your parents, it dealt with those who are making trade with each other, engaging in trade. Um, it governed all aspects of purity and all aspects of the purification of food what you can eat what you can't eat it dealt with all aspects of of life what would happen if you accidentally killed one of your neighbor's animals what would happen if there was a homosexual what would happen if there was a sorcerer in town what would be the penalties for breaking the laws how to perform the sacrifices everything was given to Moses in in this very intense dense set of laws that are huge it required that that there be people that would specifically study the jurisprudence that was given to moses in order that they may uh, be priests or 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 teachers of the law this is completely and radically different to what we've seen so far because with Adam, it was only a command to be fruitful and multiply and to stay away from the tree. But with Noah, it was just a permissibility that you can eat meat and that if somebody kills, he must be killed. With Abraham, the addition of circumcision comes into place. Because they were small families and there was no need for these extensive laws any problems that would arise between them could easily be solved between them because one of them was the imam, one of them was the proof of God, the messenger of God that was present with them. There was no need that there be extensive loss. But when you have 600,000 members of uh, believers, members of your community, members of your state, Moses now had become effectively a head of state. Moses, every time there was a problem, he would not be able to directly go down and deal with it. The people had to now know the laws of what to do if these problems arise, and they had to deal with it themselves in many instances. And that's why these laws came into place. So that's interesting. But what's even more interesting is the... This attitude that God has in the fourth covenant towards the Canaanites, the children of Satan, that cursed lineage, that cursed tree, is radically different also than the first three covenants. In the first covenant, you see Adam is just banishing Cain and he doesn't take retribution against him. There's no attack against Cain. In the second covenant, you see that Noah is patient, 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 and then a flood happens, and then he's just, you know, going on being patient after that. And there's no rebellion. There's no rise. There's no war against the Canaanites that take place between Noah and Abraham. And even when Abraham comes, you find Abraham alone calling towards God and he ends up being thrown in the fire and he's not leading any sort of military actions or attacks or uh, against any Canaanites. The first time that we see a Canaanite being killed by an Adamite is this incident with Moses and the Egyptians. Moses, he is, after receiving all of these laws, all of this knowledge and giving to his people the most extensive law and covenant that had ever come down before, he had a moment of arrogance like Adam did. And there was a moment uh, that the books, the narrations of the Ahlul Betanim Alayhi mention that he was thinking to himself, I am the most knowledgeable of all creation. God did not create anybody more knowledgeable than me. And God was angered by this, and he sent down Gabriel to tell Moses, Moses, there's a servant of mine that I want you to meet at the junction of the two seas. Follow this servant of mine, he's going to teach you what you don't know. Don't you think that you know everything? Well, there's somebody that's more knowledgeable than you. Go meet him. Moses packed up his stuff, he takes Joshua. And he begins heading towards this junction of the two seas. It is there where he meets the righteous servant. And it is there where the righteous servant, this knowledgeable man whom God had sent to him, takes Moses on a journey to teach him even more than he already knew. He takes him on a journey where they go through three stations. And these stations are mentioned in Surah one of the most important surahs that have to do with the time of the Quran. The first station, um, Moses goes with the righteous servant and they encounter uh, people on a ship. He rides on the ship with them, these poor people. They grant them free ride on there. And as they're sailing down the road, Moses sees the righteous servant beginning to place a hole in the ship. He's trying to sink the ship. Moses is horrified. He's terrified. He asks the righteous servant, Why are you doing this? These people were good to us. How can you repay their goodness? They've hosted us on their ship and they don't even have much, and you're wanting to destroy the little what what they have? I have not found this behavior anywhere justifiable in the law which came down to me that you pay back a righteous deed with 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 evil with destruction the righteous servant responds to him did i not tell you to be quiet did i not tell you that if you were going to accompany me to be silent did god not send you to me were you not supposed to be believing that i am more knowledgeable than you Moses apologizes, Moses repents, and he says, I'm not going to ask you any more questions. So they continue to go down. It's the second station that's the most important and the most relevant to our topic today. Because it is at the second station where the righteous servant, Joshua, and Moses are standing. And they see a young lad who's playing. He's a young boy. He hasn't even reached the age of puberty yet. Moses is looking at him. He smiles. He thinks to himself, what a nice young lad. The righteous servant calls over the boy. He begins to pat him on his head. All of a sudden, he takes his head and he smashes him into a giant rock which is in front of him. The boy's head is bleeding. He falls down to the ground. The righteous servant takes a knife and slaughters him the boy is dead moses is horrified moses needs an explanation moses can't stay, stay silent he says to the wretched servant what have you done you have killed an innocent soul without him having killed anyone this is verily this is an abomination now Moses was no stranger to killing. He had killed the Egyptian. But for Moses, the Egyptian was guilty. The Egyptian was an oppressor. The Egyptian was attacking one of his people. The Egyptian was not just a Canaanite, but he was also guilty of sin. Whereas the boy was guilty of no sin. And in his law, which he brought down, you can only kill somebody if they had killed, or if they were homosexual, or if they were a sorcerer, or if they had committed some sort of big crime. What was the crime that this boy did? Once again, the righteous servant reminds him, you must be silent. Did I not tell you that you would not be able to handle, you would not be able to be quiet, that you would object? Moses says, Just take me along with you, and I promise you, I will never object again. I will never talk again. And if I do, you can go ahead and kick me out. Leave me, I won't follow you anymore. Righteous servant accepts. They go to the third station. They go into the city. The people are extremely rude, they're nasty, a bunch of non believers whom are mocking them, whom are refusing them stay, refusing them food, refusing them water. As Moses and the righteous servant are walking down, they notice that there's a wall in the city. And the wall in the city is damaged. The righteous servant sees this damage. He rushes over there. He rolls up his sleeves. He begins to fix the damage in the wall. Moses can't believe it. He says, what are you doing? How can you treat the people in the ship bad and kill this boy who didn't do anything? And these people who are extremely nasty and rude and nasibi, you're fixing their wall for free. You could have at least asked for a payment. It was at this point that the righteous servant said, this is the end of the journey between me and you. And then he reveals to him, The wisdom behind the three stations that they went on. He says, as for the ship, the ship belonged to a group of poor people. And there was the king of the land who had just signed a new law in place which allowed him to go forth seizing all of the ships of the people. I felt sorry for those people. And I didn't want their ship to be taken from them. So I wanted to damage it so that when the king's people come and they see the damage, they leave him. They say, ah, it's it's not worth our trouble. And as for the boy, the boy was unrighteous. And he would grow up to give his parents a hard time. He was a non-believer. Even though he's a child today, I knew that he would grow up to be a non-believer, and I killed him, not for his actions today, but for his actions of the future, for his very nature, for him being a work of the devil. And I wanted God to trade him and grant these righteous parents a child that would be good to them instead. And as for the wall, under it was a treasure which was placed there by the parents of some orphans who were in the city. And they were believers and their parents were believers. And I wanted to fix the wall lest the non-believers of the city find that treasure and take it before they come of age. And all of what I did was not of my own command, meaning God is the one who made me do it. God is the one who told me to do it. So here we see what? Here we see that Moses kills the Egyptian for being a work of the devil. Just as God had killed the son of Noah in the flood for being an unrighteous work, which is the same thing, a work of the devil, a son of the devil. And just as God had killed all of the firstborn males or children of the Egyptians in one of the plagues as he was leading the Israelites out, and all of those four firstborn children, they had no sin on them. But now God was also showing Moses that the murder, the killing of a work of the shaitan, of one of these sons of the devils. One of these Canaanites, these members of this cursed tree, the descendants of this cursed tree, they deserve death whether they were guilty of sin or not. Whether they are adults or children, it is permissible to kill them. And that is a fascinating fact that is very much overlooked in the fourth covenant. And for those who doubt that this is the case, all they need to do is to continue looking down what happened with the the prophets and the messengers that came after that in the fourth covenant. Those prophets who came after Moses who were upon the Mosaic covenant And you don't have to go too far until you come to the story of Joshua in the book of Joshua Joshua was commanded by God after Moses to lead the Israelites into the promised land and so he leads the army of the Israelites these 600,000 he leads them down into the promised land then he stands outside of the city of Jericho, which is the first city that they were commanded to conquer. Joshua looks at his army and he says to them, God has has informed us that we will be able to overtake this city. We will be able to conquer Jericho. But there's a couple stipulations. One is that as we're conquering it, If any of you see any item, any gold, any silver, any animal, anything that you want, don't take it. You're not allowed to take it. Everything that we conquer must be for God. This is one. The second stipulation that God mentions on the tongue of Joshua to his army is that you have to, you must show that the city Belongs to God by destroying everything that's in it. Every single male. Every single woman. Every single young person. Every single old person. Every single cow and camel. And dog and cat. Everything must die. Except for Rahab and those who are with her in, in, in her house. Because they betrayed their people. And because they helped the Lord and his army, those keep alive. Everything else is demolished. And obviously the city had lots of children. And obviously they were commanded in the scripture to destroy and kill these children. So how is that justifiable? It's not. Unless they're children of the devil. Unless they're children of Iblis. And that is the fact that is often overlooked and that is the overlooking of this fact is what gives the atheists and the non-believers that ability to attack the faith. The situation with Joshua was, 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 was not a unique one. The same thing happens when, when the prophet of Israel, Samuel, who was given a command by God to anoint for Israel their first king, Saul. In the first book of Samuel, Samuel tells Saul, Saul, was I not the one who anointed you as king? Saul says, yes. Samuel says, well, God is telling me to tell you. This is in the scripture. You can look it up. God is telling me to tell you that he wants to punish the Amalekites. For what they've done. The Amalekites must be punished. And to be punished. You must take the army. And go forth. And slaughter. Every single male. And female. And child. And infant. And cow. And camel. And sheep. Everything. Destroy it. Annihilate them. Exterminate them. Completely. Completely. So once again, how is this action justifiable? It is only justifiable if they are the works of the devil, just as it was with the people of Jericho, just as it was with the Egyptian, just as it was with the child which the righteous servant slaughtered. They were all descendants of Canaan. And so... It is, it's, it's fascinating because it is in the fourth covenant that you see God actively pursuing war and genocide. And not just giving permission, but, but commanding that the, the, the children of Satan be eliminated. And we don't see that. the previous covenants so chapter four deals with with this and builds the case for for this new notion and this great new uh, covenant that taken place with moses who's the one who spoke with god but it also focuses on another aspect and that is what is the power and the authority of the person who occupies that newly established station. So Adam was like a, he, yes, he was, he was the king of all the creatures. And he was the first king who was appointed. And, but his kingdom, in terms of human beings, was limited. And then all the prophets after that, they had no kingdom because they were oppressed by the Canaanites. And Noah, the same thing. He had a limited uh, kingdom. I mean, he was, he was more of a, like a father, uh, you know, and, and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they're the three fathers of, of Israel, you know, and they didn't really have a kingdom. They were more like shepherds that were in the middle of the, you know, with their family and their sheep, setting up their tents in the land. Yes, they were heads of state, but their state was limited. Moses, now he has a whole empire. He has lots of citizens. The prophets after him have land, have an army which they're commanding. They're the commander-in-chief. So what are the limitations of the power, the authority? Chapter 4 deals with how the head of state, this divinely appointed king, is immune from prosecution. He is above the law. He cannot be prosecuted for anything. And it is a natural conclusion because even today you find that the president of the United States, for example, he's immune from prosecution. The queen or the king of the United Kingdom is immune from prosecution. These individuals, if they break the law, they can't be prosecuted. Because you can't have a state that's prosecuting their own leader. It doesn't make sense. With God, it is the same thing. The person who he appoints and he sends forth is immune from prosecution. And it's a good thing that he's immune from prosecution. Because if he sends forth a king who is the likes of the righteous servant, who is also a messenger from his... Uh, people like Moses even would have not been able to make sense of his actions and they would have called for his prosecution. They would have led rebellions against him. And so because the divinely appointed king is the most knowledgeable of his people in that time, he has to be immune from prosecution. You cannot, you cannot hold him accountable like you would hold any normal citizen in the empire. And this is shown clearly when in the one of the greatest, if not the greatest, king of Israel, David. Some people say David, some people consider Solomon to be greater. The greatest, one of the greatest kings of, of Israel, David, when he ends up breaking one of the laws. Because one of the laws that were brought down is Thou shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You cannot sleep with your neighbor's wife. You can't take another believer's wife and sleep with her. And yet David does it. He does it in the narrations of the Muslims. And he does it in the narrations of the Jews and in the Torah itself and the Christians. David one day is gazing outside of the window of his palace and his eyes fall upon a woman by the name of Bathsheba and he falls in love with her at first sight. He thinks she's incredibly beautiful. He commands his soldiers and advisors to go down and bring me this woman called Bathsheba. She comes. He finds out that she's married. She's married to a man who's a member of his army, a soldier in his army. But David ends up engaging in relations with her anyway. And she becomes impregnated. Her husband comes back. And David doesn't want people to find out. David urges him to go down and spend the night with his wife, so that the, the, the maybe when she gives birth, that this child is considered to be his child and 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 her child, and nobody doubts now who's the father of this child, and brings her to court in front of the people, and then they end up finding out that actually David's the father, and some big big scandal takes place. He just wants him to go sleep with his wife, so he commands him. He says, "Go." Go wash your feet. Go spend the night with with your wife. But the soldier doesn't agree to. The soldier tells David, I cannot. The soldier is so dedicated. He's so sincere. He tells David, how can I go sleep with my wife when my brothers are out at war fighting for God? I can't do that. I have to. I have to stay here. And I take an oath that I'm not going to even sleep with my wife at all until the war's done. And so, when David notices that it is impossible for this man to go sleep with his wife, that he's, not, he's just not going to do it, he decides to send this guy back into the battlefield and to put him on the front lines so that he may be killed. And that's exactly what happens he dies as a martyr at war and David now has Bathsheba as a widow so he takes her as an official wife and so the problem is solved now in the Torah the Prophet Nathan he comes to him and and there's an incident that takes place where Nathan kind of reprimands David for making his soldier get killed and says that this is a very bad thing that you have done and God's upset about it. And he gives him this example of you know, of two men, one who has 99 sheep and one who has one sheep. And that guest come for, for this uh, man, and instead of sacrificing one of his sheep to feed his guests, he takes the other man's one sheep and sacrifices it instead of sacrificing one of his 99. He tells David the story. David is infuriated. He says, the man who sacrificed the the one sheep of his neighbor is guilty. And then Nathan says, well, God says that you're that man who, who, you know, you took the one wife of this man, of your soldier, when you had all these wives that you inherited and that you have. So you too are guilty. But yet, God does not remove David from office. God does not move him out of his chair, out of his seat. God does not replace him as a prophet or as a messenger. Even though he got one of his soldiers killed, even though he broke the law by taking his neighbor's wife. he was reprimanded yes but he wasn't replaced because he was immune from prosecution the punishment for taking your neighbor's wife is death but David wasn't killed the law didn't apply to him because he was above the law and it's proven in that very story immune from prosecution And that's pretty much the main two points that were discussed in the fourth chapter of the book, The Goal of the Wise, regarding the fourth covenant uh, with God, the Mosaic Covenant.